Welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a brand new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Christy Jacobson's new documentary film, Solitary, which takes a look at one of the most controversial aspects of America's modern prison system, solitary confinement. With unprecedented access, Ms. Jacobson takes us deep into Virginia's Red Onion State Prison, one of at least 40 supermax prisons in the U.S., where inmates are forced to spend 23 hours of every day alone in 8 by 10 foot cells. The film captures a complex and deeply moving portrait of the lives on both sides of the bars and prompts serious questions about punishment in America today. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Jacobson spoke with director Nanette Burstein about her experiences filming Solitary, including what drove Ms. Jacobson to pursue documentary filmmaking and what her process was in designing the visual style and sound for the film within a confined environment. Hi, everyone. Um, so I have a ton of questions, having just watched this movie very recently. Um, first question is, why did you decide to pursue the subject? What made you interested? Um, first of all, hi, everyone, also, and thanks for coming out on this rainy night. Um, I, uh, so way back in the like middle ages, when I was in college, um, I studied uh, sociology and specifically criminology um, and specifically um, worked in the juvenile justice system. And um, it was sort of my experience working in, I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, like observing, I, I worked as an intern in the courthouse there and observing the brokenness of that system is what drove me to want to make documentary films. Um, sort of trying to tell the really human stories that I felt like were lost in these like just broken systems. Um, and uh, you know, I was really fortunate to pursue this career and have the privilege and honor of working on a lot of films about a lot of really meaningful subjects. But after I made my film before this called A Place at the Table, which was about hunger in America and was released um, by participant and Magnolia Pictures and had like a you know pretty high profile. Um, I felt like now is the moment to like go back to that subject that is like really um, the kinds of stories that I want to tell and try and find the funding to do that and to do it independently. Um, and I was reading a lot of about what was going on at that time in the summer of 2012. There was an upcoming case around um, whether we were gonna continue to sentence juveniles to life without parole. And I read an article about juveniles who were held in solitary and uh, how that could irreparably damage uh, a young kid. And I just was like, I, I, it's stunning that we do that here in the United States. And then I started digging a little further um, and I read this article in the New Yorker magazine called, um, oh my gosh, I've just forgotten what it was called, Hellhole, Hellhole. And it was written by uh, a prominent doctor, uh, Dr. Atul Gwande, and it's sort of described in really great detail what happens to the human mind when you're deprived of human contact. And again, it was sort of like, how could we be doing this? How could I not know this? And now that I know this, like, I need to find out more. That's kind of it. 
Right. No, <clears throat> that's certainly a subject that's, you know, obviously of great interest. I mean, you know, we have a huge prison population in this country. And I mean, the idea that juvenile, this is happening to juveniles as well. I mean, this is exemplary of what happens to your mind if you're, you know, deprived of any kind of social experience, any kind of sensory experience. Um, so how did you go about getting access? So as I began, so I was really fortunate in that I had also been um, working with uh, a really brilliant guy who uh, funds a lot of criminal justice reform work and some films, including this one, um, who has like a pretty vast network in these worlds. Um, but everybody said, like, you're never going to get access inside. No one ever gets inside. Um, there's a film, Herman's House, that, that many people um, referred me to. That's a really beautiful, stunning film about um, Herman Wallace, who was in solitary for many years, mostly, but not, not, it doesn't, you can't ever film with him. And so I thought I would seek out survivors. I would talk to psychiatrists. Um, and I would portray the story of how we got to here, which I thought, and still think is really fascinating. I think a lot of it is being shown right now in 13th, which is screening at uh, the New York Film Festival right now, Ava DuVarney's film, um, just in terms of like the policies that led us to be a nation that so, is so overpunitive, in addition to the sentencing problems. But um, I also just wasn't gonna not try <laughs> to get in. Um, and so I uh, sort of identified at that time there were a handful of states that were making some progress in terms of recognizing that this, this whole mess started off uh, uh, one day in 1983 when two guards were killed on the same day in a, in a maximum security federal prison in Marion, Illinois. And the prison went on lockdown, even though they knew the two people who committed the murders, um, and remained on lockdown for years and decades, and that became the model that was then exported, and then these supermax prisons were built in the late 90s, early 2000s, so now we're 20 years out, and some states were recognizing that the people inside my prisons are getting released into, my com into the communities, and um, what, what's the impact of that? So, state of Virginia was one of those states, um, and I had an introduction um, to the director of the Department of Corrections through an email. I asked him if he'd be willing to talk to me about what he was doing. Um, and that led to a series of conversations that ultimately led to me saying, I, there's no way for me to understand what you're doing. Yeah, I can't just interview you. I need to, I need to see it. And um, he was incredibly open. He was like, before we even continue these conversations, you need to just go visit. So I flew by myself to Red Onion State Prison, spent the day there, the warden and a bunch of people showed me around, and I had never seen anything like that. And a um, couple month, 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 six weeks later, I was there for what was meant to be just a three-day shoot. So I kind of asked sort of the right person at the right time for the right thing, you know, which wasn't may I have access to film for a year and a half inside your prison, unrestricted, no questions asked. I asked if I could like check out what they were doing and film some of it. And from there, built relationships on the ground. So you spent a year and a half filming there. And did you each time meet different um, 
inmates and and get to know them or what was the process like over that period of time yeah it's a little it you know it was a bit of a challenging film to edit um because in some ways nothing happens um you know internally obviously a lot is going on um and emotionally and psycho psychologically with a lot of people there um but their circumstances remained more or less the same um so when i some of the men that are in the film i actually met actually met Randall, who you meet at the very beginning of the film, who closes the film, on the first day I was visiting. He clearly is a charismatic storyteller. Um, and so there were some people that the Department of Correction wanted me to meet at the beginning, and I met them and talked to them. And I, and I sort of just operated on instinct in terms of, I, I didn't ever ask people, what did you do? Why are you here? Um, I just, because I think once I spent that one day in there and I felt, First of all, like ill that night because of the burden of the responsibility of knowing I was going to be able to film inside there and no one gets inside there and I better get it right. Um, but I felt the humanity of the people whose like faces I could see just little slivers of, these like dead eyes behind the window. I felt that that was the most, I thought that was the, my, my mission was like to, to, to bring that out. Um, and so I sought people who I could connect with. And then I also sought people who I, the Department of Corrections wasn't saying interview this guy. You know, like I spent a lot of time like going door to door in some of the pods where there was group um, interaction. Um, I met Michael, um, who's one of the main characters in the film, the one, give me my damn salt. Um, because he was in the infirmary the day we were filming in the infirmary and the infirmary windows are a little bit less soundproof so you can actually talk to someone in a way that was impossible really i mean it when people were being um held in the the the, the normal cells in the in the seg pods they're called pods units um uh so i was able to have like a chat with him he had been sent to the infirmary because of an incident. Um, uh, and uh, anyway, I, when I came back the next time, I said, I want to talk to him. And they pulled him and I talked to him. So it was like sort of a combination of ways to meet people. So sorry to answer your question. So some people I, I filmed with on almost every trip or at least visited and spent a little time with. Um, and others I met sort of throughout the process. Um. One thing I noticed in your film outside of just the, the poignancy and the, the very intimate and, and honest interviews that you got was the artfulness of how you also accomplished it, just visually and sound design and really trying to, you know, you're in one confined facility for an entire film. You don't go back into their past life or anything. There's no photos, nothing. You're just in that space, which is so so effective um, and you find different ways to show how claustrophobic it is or the, even just the sound of it, the echoing of the cement and can you talk about that process and, and how you came up with that kind of visual and sound design in the process? Yeah, I mean, I'll first just say thanks. That means a lot coming from you. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think so. So first thing was that when I left, after that first day from like 7 a.m. till 4 p.m., um, it was 
those the sound that was the thing i mean i've filmed in a lot of prisons and they don't none of them sound like that like projecting ahead to when we were working with our sound editor and our sound designers when i i was like no we're not that's that's prison sounds that's not red onion sounds we're not we're going to layer the sounds that we recorded the original sound so so i knew that sound would be important and um to that end i i worked with i think the answer to your question has to do with how smart and talented and brilliant the people I worked with are. So I worked with a sound recordist named John Matthew, who's out of Chicago, um, who's been doing documentary sound for a long time, and I never wanted, I, we, the same team went in every time. And I worked with DP Nelson Hume, who I'd worked with before, who has just a really, I think, um, he has a beautiful way of composing shots, and he also has a really beautiful way of connecting with people. Um, and we sort of together after the first shoot, we sort of like, you know, brought in a lot of gear, a lot of, you know, made sure we had dolly tracks and sliders and anything that we might need. Um, and then as it turned out, we were like, wow, filming in a prison is different than filming in the real world. Like we know that every 15 minutes that guy is gonna do his rounds, you know? And we know that every time we interview someone, they need to go get him, strip him, shackle him, bring him, reshackle him, bring him back, you know, unshackle him. It was very repetitive. What even just for us. So we were watching the repetition unfold before our eyes and constantly thinking of ways that we could capture that in ways that would be interesting visually and cinematically. And um and so we, you know, we spent sometimes we spent like days not filming that much uh, interviews or footage with the, with, you know, that that type of footage, and we just were present, um, you know, following the meal tray. But I'll say also then this brings up the other um, really important factor in this, which was my editor Ben Gold. So he talked about sort of like being inside that one place and only that one place. I mean, it wasn't always that way. I had we had footage, we had this archival footage, we had so much other, so many other elements. And the more the film started to come together, the more it became evident, like as Todd, who the other layer is, our composer said, it's like being on a spaceship and you wanted to stay on the spaceship. And we want to do everything we can with the music, with the sound, with the editing, with the sound design to 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 do to create that. And in and in many ways for me, it was to recreate the journey that I, you know, um went on and I'm fortunate to have left as as the men in the prison are not. Um, um so I and I and I, I think that Ben, the editor, really um you know, struggled at times, and then we worked really hard. I remember one time I was like, wait, 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 that scene, that scene makes it seem like something's gonna happen. And he was like, I don't think I've ever been in the edit room with a director who was like mad at me, because it seemed like something was about to happen. But I, you know, I didn't want to set the audience up and then let them down, because there was just this, this repetition. Um, so, uh, so yeah, there were some really, um, Lots of really committed people that um, work together to kind of try and create that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was so poignant because, you know, in addition to the humanity of their stories, which you really captured so well, given your interview techniques, but the 
just the whole style of it made you feel that claustrophobia that they feel and made you really, or helped you at least, to really understand some of what they might be experiencing. And I think that's so poignant in the movie. It was very powerful. Um, so I wanted to open it up to questioning, if anyone has any questions, which I'm sure you do. Yes. So the question is, why why would they have agreed to it other than timing? Were they proud of the program? Yeah, so prior to implementing the program, there had been a series of exposés written um, in the Washington Post about the conditions inside the prison and the um, indefinite isolation of people being held there. And, um, and, and, and quite honestly, that program that you see featured in the film, it's not, you know, the film isn't about the program, but is better than what happens, what's in most prisons. So it is something to be proud of. They were making an effort to uh, reduce the number of prisoners that they had in solitary confinement. When we started filming, there was maybe something close to, now I'm forgetting the numbers, 700 in, in isolation and, you know, a good two-thirds of them had moved back to general population. But what I found became really important to me was like, yes, I had access to that story, but most of the people had been moved through to general population by the time I started filming. So that was just a sort of circumstance that made it difficult to tell that story. But I also recognized very quickly that it left many people behind. And I felt that in my research about the subject, and in the articles that I'd read and what short films there were that were out there, the people featured in those films or those profiles are almost always innocent. They're almost always exonerated individuals who are looking back at the time they spent in solitary and how unjust that is. Or, and it's very true and completely, um, I think, unacceptable, there are many who are sent to solitary or isolation or SAG um, for reasons that are incredibly minor and, and that shouldn't be the case. But what happens when you did something inside prison and you are guilty of a crime? I feel that those are, I found that those are like the most forgotten people in America. If you have committed a crime and you are sitting in jail, nobody cares about you. And so it became important to me to share those stories and for it not to hinge on innocence or guilt, um, but, to, but to, to, to really feature people who audiences might be quite uncomfortable connecting with, but nonetheless, those are human beings who are being held in our prisons um, in these kinds of conditions. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that, it, that part of why I wanted people to understand who were watching this was the the loss of jobs in the coal mining business and the fact that there really aren't a lot of jobs in areas like this is like that almost all of our supermax prisons and high security prisons are in places like this. And yeah, it's kind of win-win for politicians in particular in the 90s, you know, to say like, I'm tough on crime and I'm, I'm creating jobs. Um, and like the money from the, the federal and state governments was just pouring in in the billions to build prisons. Um, but I do wanna say that I think that the degree of training that, that individuals get to work in that prison or that they did get up until the implementation of this program was you know, minimal, was like 
you fill out the application, maybe a little bit of training on the security side. I do think that's something that's not shown in the film, but I think that they were making some headway towards, I mean, and it was also created as a hostile place. It was built specifically to be us and them. Us the guards against them the inmates, us the inmates against them the guards. There's, you know, it's a, it's a rural place in Appalachia where a lot of urban um, people of color are being imprisoned. So, and you can't, you actually, there is no way to communicate, right? So they set it up that way. So there's a long way to go from there to like having meaningful, compassionate conversations. But I also experienced myself being there. I think that there is a sort of survival mechanism going on for the people who work there. Um, and um, if you were to connect with all of the people in there and have to go to work every day and leave them there every day, I don't know, you know, I, I, that would be a really hard thing to take. Um, and I even found on some trips myself starting to change, like, and having to, like, check myself and see what was going on. So I think that it becomes important to them to not try and imagine what it's like to be inside that cell. I'm not condoning that, I'm just saying like, in the absence of any other kind of support or ways to kind of work through that. Um, but what I hope, I mean, I hope that the film shines a light on this like dehumanizing way to treat people, which is illustrated in the, in the worst possible way in how we isolate people in solitary confinement, but it's pretty much what all of our prisons are like. And it's just a recipe for disaster, and um, it needs to be like radically um, rethought, in my opinion. And I and I think it's really possible to change it. I actually had a question because in the film, some of the correction officers are the ones that are leading this program at, um, that that are obviously not trained psychologists right. or educators, but right. they're the ones basically providing therapy type of sessions, like what are you gonna do when right. you, you have anger management issues? Right. And right. and it, so do they get any kind of training for this or is it just learn by doing? Yeah, so, they, so in the implementation of the step-down program, one of the advantages that the Department of Corrections saw in that was that because there had been this us and them, they did go through, I don't know how many months or weeks the training was, but to teach this thing, which was is called the Challenge Series, which is like these seven books that's called Behavior um, Modification um, sort of treatment. Um, so they're trained in it. Um, they're not, they don't have degrees in it. Um, but so on the one hand, the idea was so that there was more interaction, there was more human exchange. Um, but from the Prisoner's point of view, I heard frequently, well, the same guys who's like, their number one job is security, you know, like, then their number two job is kind of to connect with me, like, it didn't, it didn't really make sense um, from that point of view. So, uh, you know, I don't think by any stretch it's a, it's a, it's a perfect solution, clearly. Um, what would a New York therapist say about that? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all yeah. a parallel. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think what's really striking is, you know, uh, uh, at least one, and, and perhaps more, I, I remember one of the inmates talked about how he'd been 
in prison for most of his life since the age of 11. He'd been in juvie. Like, what kind of life is that? You know, how yeah. do you get ahead of that? Yeah. And it was so impactful. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, so I told you that sort of my, um, the impetus to even want to ever make documentary films had to do with my experience in the juvenile justice system, working with the juvenile court counselor, so the defense attorneys for juveniles who are being tried in court. Um, and when Randall, that's that's who you're talking about, told us that. I mean, he he would go from like, you know, first of all, they were so starved for human contact, obviously, and conversation that as a filmmaker who's been, you know, interviewing um, real people, you know, for, for decades, um, this was like, it was like the intensity of my relationship with them was just, it was just like, oh my God, it was so exponential. Um, but anyway, he was, he remembered like with every detail his life story. And like when we went and got the records, court records, you know, to kind of, you know, back up everything that everybody was telling us, I mean, it was like to a T. Um, and, uh, but when, when he told me this, when, when he was the day that, when we finished that interview, they, he walked away or he was shackled and walked away. Um, and put back into the prison and Nelson into a cell and Nelson filmed with him going back to his cell. And I just sat there and I was just like, this is on us. Not that he is not responsible and doesn't take responsibility as you see in the film for the actions he took, but there were so many moments during the course of that kid's life where interventions or could have, could have happened and I think that's on us, I think that's on me. And um, I felt that that was something I hoped would come through. Now, some people get it and take that away from the film, and some people, you know, some people do. Some people take different things away from it. But um, that was really a poignant moment for me. Yes. Um, so the prisoners, um, when I first arrived and, and began filming, I think there had been. Like there, because this program was in effect, and the Department of Corrections was proud of it, um, and they were trying to show uh, the the like other departments of corrections and things what they'd done. So they were like used to visitors a little bit, you know, like coming through on a tour kind of thing. Um, so at first, I think they thought I was some kind of visitor, and then they were sure I was actually working for the administration. Um, and so it took a long time, you know, I would introduce myself. So there were groups of prisoners that I met, again, that had already moved through the program. Um, but when I had, and, and they're different, the, you know, you saw that some of them were in different, like the group treatment um, classes. I'd say, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. I'm independent um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this program, about being here in prison, about what it's like to be in SAG. You know, if you don't want to talk to me, you don't need to talk to me. If you want to talk to me, I want to talk to you. And, um, but still, like I'd say on like the third visit, like people were convinced that I was working for the administration. And there's this exchange between Dennis and I when he was like, well, I think that at the beginning, um, also, you know, so obviously the more I came back, the more they were like, this New Yorker keeps coming back. <laughs> um, she must care about us, you know? She must mean it. Um, and so I think that they then saw it. Both the guards 
or correctional officers and the prisoners, I think, saw, because it's true, I did care, and I do care, and I did want to hear what they have to say, and that's a big part of how I make my films, you know, is I just, I really, for better or for worse, um, care a lot, um, and so, anyway, so we started to build, they started to trust me more, but there was this exchange with Dennis where he said, he was telling me about his and you know the, the, these frustrations, and he's like, "Well, anyway, this won't be in the film because the Department of Corrections has a final cut." I said, "No, they don't." He said, "Yes, they do." I said, "No, they don't." I asked the producer, and I asked, you, know, "You guys, or the corrections officers, do you have the final cut, or do I have the final cut?" Um, uh, so there's a little disbelief, I guess. Um, as far as whether they've seen it or not, they have not seen it. Um, I did share the film with the Department of Corrections. Um, they probably wish the film turned out differently. Um, but I also think respect me for what, what I did with the access they gave me. Um, and we're just not yet at a place where we've figured out how or if it's possible for those men to see the film. Did they have HBO on their TVs? I can't yeah. imagine. Do I they? Maybe a big lucrative HBO <laughs> deal is coming up. I don't know. They don't. I, they don't have HBO. Oh, no. You, you read that correctly. Um, so she was just mentioning it, that in the film it says that for those who've attempted escape, return to general population is not possible. So. There has been one change, two changes made to the film since I showed it to the Department of Corrections. And that is one of them because Lars, the man you saw featured in the film, has since been transferred to general population. Wow. Yeah, it, but that's not the normal path, I don't think. Um, so the revised version that will air on HBO will say it's, you need extra permissions because it's, 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 it is a little bit possible, yeah. I mean, that was an amazing conversation that was it happening. It was not possible at that time. Right, at the yeah. time. And he was saying, well, I, you know, I feel hopeless. I don't feel like I yeah. can ever return. And yeah. the prison manager was like, well, no, it's a work in progress. And he was like, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, he just wanted to be polite at that moment. He was biting his tongue, yeah. but clearly he felt like, yeah. as of now, no. Yeah, it was not. It was then not possible. Um, and now it is. A little bit possible. <laughs> what did the what did that character the the prison unit manager what did he feel about your presence in the crew? He seemed supportive, but he was he present a lot for the you interviews. The warden? Yes, the warden. No, yeah. not the warden. Oh. The the prison unit manager, the the guy with the goatee. I, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. The guy in that scene. Yeah. Um. So well, I'll, the the warden was incredibly welcoming, and um. The warden has, you know, was was once a corrections officer and has been through a lot, and I think um, I think correctly placed his trust in me to tell the story. Um, anyway, he 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 did, and he really afforded me, you know, the kind of access as you saw that is really unusual. Um, and towards the end of filming, we had we had pretty much finished the film, and actually, there's a young man who we filmed, um, who was released from prison um, during, we had started filming with him, 22 years old, he'd been locked up since he was 17, done five of those years in SAG, um, but he had been transferred to general population after our first shoot, 
It was really difficult for us to film in general population for a lot of reasons, including lockdowns because of weapons and things like that. Um, so we were unable to like fully, we, we were unable to tell his story in the film, um, but we didn't know that until we were in the edit. And so we filmed his release. Um, and uh, there was a new warden at that time because the, the warden who had been there during all of the filming had been promoted and my access was very different. Um, so it, it was, you know, it's, it's a personality thing, it's a trust thing, um, and so, but to your question about the unit managers, I think that different unit managers had different perspectives on us. Some of them really didn't want us around. Some of them thought we were like oddities. Um, some of them were interested to get to know people that were new and different and to have an opportunity to tell their story. Because I think that, you know, Corrections officers are, are also, in some ways, a very forgotten group of people who are, you know, perhaps some are doing things that are absolutely deplorable and criminal and shouldn't be doing that, but most of them are just doing their jobs and um, in a really difficult situation. Um, so I think that some of them welcomed the opportunity to have their story be heard by someone who seemed open. I was curious uh, what and I don't know if you know the answer to this, like of the people in, in that unit, how many of them were on medi you know, some uh, medication for depression or psychological problems? So I don't know the actual number, but I can tell you that sort of statistically, you know, the vast majority of people who wind up in solitary confinement have some mental illness, that's oftentimes why you get there. You can't function in the general population, you're not following rules, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, a problem for the prison guards and the warden, and so you get sent to SAG. Um, and then, as Dennis described, many, many people that I interviewed, not just in that prison, but in the year, the three years of making the film, um, including psychiatrists, you know, said that I mean, there's like an actual psychiatric disorder that happens. Um, uh, you know, you start like, you know, you can't sleep. You, there's a whole series of symptoms um, that happen that ultimately end with many people losing their minds irreparably. There's a guy who I filmed with in Chicago who came to, there's, there's a bunch of guys in New York who are activists who have been to a couple of screenings and most of them can't sit through the film. Um, and there's like a re-traumatizing, you know, that's happening all the time for them. So it's really hard for them to survive on the outside, which is another reason, aside from the just humanity of what's happening inside, to stop doing this. Are there any other questions? So the film is going to air in um, the end of January or early February 2017 on HBO. Um, it's gonna have a small theatrical release here in New York in um, December. So um, tell your friends. Yeah, so th there's a pretty um, basic website that lives right now called Solitary Doc, um, and you could sign up if you wanted to be, you know, make sure that you find out when the film's coming out. We're also hashtag Solitary Doc. Great, well thank you all very much for coming. Thank you. And thank you, Christy, for making thank such you. an amazing movie. Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. 
You can watch more discussions like this on our website. Also on our website, you can explore our visual history program with long-form oral history interviews that delve deep into the careers of veteran DGA members. Check out the program at dga.org craft slash visual history. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to The Director's Cut on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.